This is Matt Greller, CEO of AIM. Welcome to the Hometown Innovations Podcast. Join us as we share ways our municipalities are positioning themselves for the future, thought-provoking interviews with state and local leaders, and more. Thanks for listening as we tell the municipal story. Welcome to this episode of AIM's Hometown Innovations Podcast. This is Chelsea Schneider, AIM Municipal Innovation Specialist, and today I am in Columbus with Mayor Jim Linnup. Mayor, tell me a little bit about the heroin epidemic, you know, responses and kind of proposals Columbus has in place. Sure. You know, we've been, uh, we've been fortunate to have some good partners. So the first thing that I would encourage anyone to do would be to reach out and find others in the community that can work with you. Uh, here we have formed a partnership among the City of Columbus, uh, the County of Bartholomew, and Columbus Regional Health, which is the local health care provider. And the whole notion is to try to get some buy-in among, you know, all the uh, the agencies that really have a, a hand in this. I mean, you know, we have taken the whole area uh, of, uh, of opioid use and tried to break it down into sort of four tasks. Um, and what we call those, number one, is prevention and education. Uh, number two is law enforcement. Number three is treatment. And number four is recovery. And we've had, uh, you know, discussions with the schools and some of the other treatment uh, providers, you know, here in town. But, uh, but again, the three uh, that we started with were the county government, the city government, and, uh, and the health care provider here. Uh, with respect to prevention and education, you know, what we're looking at there are a series of programs that uh, most of the stuff's available. I mean, you don't really have to create much of it. You just find it. And then uh, uh, we'll take it out to the schools. And for most of the, uh, the local schools, it'll become part of the health curriculum that uh, that they're already teaching so they don't have to add a new class they really don't have to uh, change their existing schedule which is something that you're always trying to fit into uh, but just just provide them with a little bit more content that may replace some of what they already do but clearly is more relevant to what's going on in uh, in our communities today and it'll re relate to um, a number of different facets of uh, of opioid use, uh, you know, part of what we're trying to get kids to understand is the pill culture that uh, already exists in our communities, uh, exists in our society. Uh, maybe a greater awareness of what uh, what they're putting into their bodies, uh, an understanding of uh, the signs of addiction or or addictive personalities. I mean, part of what I think is important for people to understand is whether they, as an individual or others in their family or friend group, uh, whether they are. Um, uh, subject to or, or more inclined towards addictive behavior. You know, for example, you know, if you have someone who already smokes, uh, the last thing you really want to do is give them some kind of an opioid painkiller, uh, even though they may need it for surgery or something, but, but you've already got somebody who's addicted to one substance, so why would we want to try to, you know, them with another one? So, you know, just, you know, that kind of education, that kind of an understanding so that they're prepared uh, to challenge, if need be, you know, a provider, because we still find that there seems to be, uh, from our perspective at least, uh, some some excessive uh, prescribing of of these kind of uh, opioid painkillers, uh, and and you'll see it in some of the most innocuous places. I mean, if you have a a teenager who goes in to have a wisdom tooth removed, it's not uncommon for them to walk away with a 30-day supply of, you know, some kind of painkiller. And you really need to question you know, whether that's appropriate. So when we talk about prevention and education, 
It's those kinds of things, trying to make people aware of, of what's going on with the, the medications they receive and then to be aware of the signs of uh, addictive behavior you know, on, in themselves as well as uh, you know, others that are around. With respect to law enforcement, uh, we are, anticipate uh, being able to form a drug court. Uh, those are common in, I should, well, I don't know if they're common, but they're, pre they're present other places in Indiana. And so we, our team has, uh, you know, been out and visited uh, several communities where those are already in place. Uh, last week, I went to Bloomington and uh, Judge Dikoff, uh, you know, sat with her in her courtroom and sort of observed what happened there and interviewed her afterwards. And, and I think that it's something that we can do. It requires some buy-in uh, by not only the local judge or the, the uh, judicial community, but, uh, but the prosecutor's office, uh, you know, has to be able to participate as well. Uh, but they've been doing it over there for 20 years, and I think it uh, certainly looks like a great model, and we're going we're gonna to do something like that here. Uh, well, the next part that we'll want to move into is treatment. And part of what we're going to try to do is develop some treatment programs that will work in the jail. Uh, the whole notion is that we've got a captive audience, no pun intended, but uh, these are people who we can, um, whose attention we have, and perhaps you know, they're at a position in their lives where they're willing to, uh, to, to undergo or to enter treatment. And I think it's pretty obvious that you have to have people who want to uh, sort of turn their lives around, so to speak, and, and we have to catch them when the time's right. Uh, all too often, we have people in our local jail who would like to uh, engage in some kind of a recovery program, but right now we don't have anything to offer them. And by the time they've completed their sentence and they go back out into uh, you know, the community from once they came, they just go back to what they were doing. And, uh, and we realize that that's just not much of a solution. So we've got a couple of in-house or in-jail uh, in treatment programs that are underway. We've begun to partner with a company called Centerstone, which is a name that should be familiar to, uh, to many in Indiana, about, uh, about treatment programs uh, that, they will, uh, that they will provide the staffing for. But we need, uh, you know, to find a location. And, and yeah, there'll be uh, some funding that will be required. And, and then the fourth item will be recovery, and that is where we, uh, you know, try to, to ease people back into uh, society, provide them with some kind of supervised uh, activity. Again, in the drug court situation I referred to a few minutes ago, uh, those people show up weekly. They submit to uh, uh, drug tests initially uh, daily, but uh, over time it becomes weekly and then random, bi-week or bi-monthly kind of thing. And and so we, we've tried to find a way to... Uh, uh, get them back out into society. We may have a few employers who are already on board in terms of, uh, you know, being willing to accept these people if they're, you know, they're, uh, their transgressions weren't too severe. Um, but, but again, you know, try to find a, um, a way to uh, get them back into society so the recidivism rate isn't as high as what we normally expect. Well, they tell us in, in uh, Monroe County was that they're somewhere around 50 percent, uh, which as far as we can tell, is a pretty good, uh, pretty good number to get to, so, which much better than what we have here. Uh, as you can well imagine, funding is an issue, and that gets back to the original partnership that we have. Our local hospital uh, is willing to uh, put some money, you know, into this program because they see the costs of the uncompensated costs that they bear in their emergency room and elsewhere in their system, and they'd like to find a way to reduce that. So they are prepared to to help fund some of this. Uh, Bartholomew County recently enacted a, an increase to the local income tax 
went from one and a quarter percent to 1.75 and so we're going to use some of that money to uh, to pay for some of these things that I just talked about um, but we, we feel like we've got a pretty good start uh, you know we've been studying this issue now for not quite a year and what we talk about is it's a time to transition from study to do and so uh, over the next six months we'll We'll be rolling some of these things out and be able to give you a little bit better uh, progress report, if you will, in terms of what we think has been effective and, and maybe what, uh, uh, what might not have been as effective. So, so check back with us, Chelsea, uh, sure in about six months, and we'll give, you, we'll give you an update on that. No, I mean, that, that's really great and a holistic you know, approach you know, going through the steps. Why do you think it's kind of the city's role or a local government leader's role to really kind of come alongside you know, this need in the community to address the, you know, heroin opioid epidemic? Well, you know, we're all, <laughs> we, we sort of joke in, in Bartholomew County, we're all Republicans here. And, and what we mean by that is that we really do rely or expect the private sector to, uh, to take the lead on most of this stuff. But th there's no profit to be made in, in this activity. Uh, the, uh, the, the staff to patient ratio, if you want to look at it that way, is way too high. To uh, to allow for uh, for the element of profit in this, and so if it's going to get settled, if it's going to get addressed, uh, government and most likely municipal government is going to have to step forward, and it's simply because we're closest. You know, we uh, you know we sort of have a, a better feel for what's happening in our communities, and I think we're better able to respond to it. Uh, funding is is always going to be an issue, but. Uh, uh, we we can get we we so far have been able to get the money that we we think we need, and uh, and hopefully it'll it, you know we'll we'll be able to have enough to make a uh, make an improvement in the situation. But but I really don't feel like it's appropriate for us to to sit around and wait for uh, some other entity or the private sector to step forward. You know we do get some participation from the private sector because you know the the, the employers in and around us are, look for workers and. Uh, you know they find it difficult sometimes for their uh, recruits to uh, to pass a, a, a drug screen, and so there there is some interest there, and we have been able to tap into that. But uh, it seems like if we don't lead, uh, there's nobody else will, and so uh, so it's just incumbent upon us to to take the leadership role there and and uh, see if we can't get something done. Definitely, um, you know, kind of switching gears to another program. You know, the city's doing light elimination mm -hmm. you know tell me a little bit about columbus's mm -hmm. you know um kind of proposal and kind of right. reaction to that well there's really two pieces to that i mean we're, when we talk about blighted property it seems like we've got real estate which oftentimes is residential dwellings that have fallen into an extreme state of disrepair and then we've got uh, abandoned or inoperable vehicles uh, which sometimes go hand in hand but uh, but sometimes don't but anyway with respect to the real estate uh, we've been able to tap into a blight elimination program. It's a HUD program that uh, will uh, it pay the, uh, the owner of the property some money. I mean, it, it might be as high as 5,000 bucks. Then they'll also help fund the demolition. And so at least the, the homeowner walks away with some cash and we, uh, we end up with a piece of property that we can then turn over to uh, some not-for-profit organization here in town who might be able to uh, you know, construct something there that you know, someone else could live in. I mean, you might think of it as a Habitat for Humanity kind of thing. I mean, it's not that per se, but uh, uh, we've got a couple organizations here in town that will construct uh, housing 
and then turn it over to another not-for-profit that will manage it for, uh, for low-income purposes. Uh, with respect to the vehicles, we're really kind of pleased. Um, we have, um, uh, the city council agreed, oh, maybe six months ago to uh, pay the towing charge if uh, we had a vehicle that uh, the owner wanted to go ahead and participate in this program. And the advantage is, is that the city will tow the vehicle, will take it to a salvage yard, and the owner gets the salvage value. And again, just to put some numbers on this, the salvage value is typically $200, um, and the tow charge is somewhere between the $50, $60 range. So for 50 or 60 bucks, you know, we've been able to get rid of an abandoned vehicle. And we've done about 20, maybe 22 of those in this six-month period. And while that number may not be large, what has been significant is the effect on others. Once people tend to realize that, yeah, we're serious about this program, because there, you know, what I described to you was the carrot. There is a stick. I mean, if if we identify this inoperable vehicle as as that, and you don't respond to our request to participate in this program, well, then the fines can reach $100 a day. And so, you know, people have begun to notice uh, what we're doing here, and it's just it's funny how this works, you know. Uh, 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 compliance, uh, voluntary compliance, has really increased. And when our code enforcement officer contacts somebody and tells them that, you know, you need to take care of this, he gets a little more respect <laughs> you know, than, than he used to. And, and so we think that's a good thing. Um, and as I said, the, the numbers themselves spread over six months may not seem like much, but what has been significant is the amount of voluntary compliance and the, the number of complaints we've received have declined. Great. Yeah. Tell me about, you know, the other great things. Well, we've got a number on. of other projects going on here in Columbus that uh, that really are kind of fun. We've got, uh, uh, well, we've, we've got a train issue, you know, that I, I think some people, at least those of us in central or southern Indiana are probably familiar with. But, uh, you know, we're working with the Department of Transportation to construct an overpass. Uh, that's That's been an interesting uh, challenge for us. Uh, we've got um, uh, a riverfront that... Uh, you know, we'd like to activate, uh, and again, it's a bit of a challenge working with the different permitting agencies and, and trying to develop the political consensus here in the community that, uh, that yeah, this is something that we ought to tackle. Uh, you know, those of us who get around visit other communities where they have a river that, uh, uh, that the community has been able to activate or sort of uh, embrace, you know, they sort of get it. Uh, we haven't ever, we've never done that in Columbus, and so uh, you've got to teach uh, teach the community how important that is but uh, but it's a great time you know we uh, we like to be able to have those challenges and uh, see if we can address them great well thank you so much mayor we really appreciate your time you're welcome so. thank you